0: Hello and welcome to the latest MoneyMakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and I'm joined by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, to look back at what's happened over the week and to take a modest peer into the future. Simon, this has been not such a good week for the markets. I think it's fair to say, and the investment trust sector has not been immune from that.
1: That's correct. It's been a tougher week for the uh, for the markets and investment trusts in general. So. Uh, you know, we started off Monday, Tuesday wasn't too bad, but certainly from the middle of the week onwards, we saw markets slide a little bit of recovery towards the end of the week. But the sector average discount, which is one of the kind of key barometers that we, we look at to see how healthy the investment trust sector is, has actually uh, widened out again. So it was touching around about 10 percent, certainly at the close of business on Thursday.
0: Right. So that is getting back to levels uh, that we haven't uh, seen apart from these extreme market uh, movements that we saw in march and uh, at the end of 2018 this is getting back to the kind of level that uh, we were used to in the in the good old days i would say many years ago
1: many years ago absolutely so if you look at uh, the individual subsectors every one is now trading at a wider discount than we've seen over the last uh, 12 months so um you know there is arguably value out there
0: so when that happens across the whole spectrum as you just said That is obviously reflecting a balance of supply and demand. And I guess there's a broader interpretation of what's happening is that after this quite impressive rally we've had in April and early May, uh, investors are having another look at what the likely sort of medium, longer-term impact of the coronavirus pandemic is going to be, and also looking very carefully at all these rather bleak numbers that are coming out from government agencies and and the Treasury and the Bank of England, you know, talking about some recessionary numbers, which look very big on paper even though, of course, it's only one quarter uh, that they're struggling to uh, forecast as it is. But are you are you conscious from your uh, professional stance of there being kind of a, a wave of selling or is it just a, a rebalancing going on here?
1: Talking to people who are participants across the marketplace, you, you get the impression that, yes, the, the, the market sell-off in March was probably a little bit too extreme and clearly there was a huge amount of fear at that stage. Thereafter, the recovery took us to a place, particularly in, in certain sectors, really highly rated sectors, such as um, some of the US uh, major technology companies, that made people slightly nervous in terms of the valuations. Uh, you know, you can look at some of these companies, you wouldn't actually know that there's a, a particular crisis underway. And if one takes the, the argument that actually it's going to take some time to work our way through this then you could argue that the, that the market is valuations are too high at the moment. So a natural reaction to that is just to take a step back. So talking to people around the marketplace, many say they're ready to buy again, but they're going to wait for the next sell-off before they do so. So I think that's where we are at the moment. There's a bit of an impasse between buyers and sellers.
0: Okay, so that's something to watch, obviously. Let's uh, look as we normally do at one or two of the announcements that have been made in the last few days. There have been some interesting news from quite a lot of the sort of bigger, better known investment trusts, the ones that have very large market capitalizations. And we'll talk about one or two of those in a moment. But first, I think it'd be good to just to catch up with what some of the trusts in the equity income sector, we keep mentioning the equity income sector, because it is such a potent source of dividend income for shareholders. And there have been some announcements this week from uh, at least a couple of the members of that uh, sector, I believe. One, obviously, is Temple Bar, and the other one is Troy Income and Growth. What, what, what have they been saying?
1: So, obviously, Temple Bar has been in the news quite a bit this year. Um, the manager there, the long-term manager, Alistair Mondays, is on uh, leave of absence for health reasons at the moment. Uh, and the board, uh, after that was announced, the board decided to Um, Look at different options in terms of its investment management. So that one is, uh, we could say, in play at the moment. But the announcement this week um, was that they declared their first dividend for their financial year. So that's fine. But they also, it was the accompanying statement, I think there was a particular interest there. And the board said that shareholders should not assume from this i.e. that first dividend, that the total dividend for the year as a whole will be similarly maintained. In other words, just just find out here. We, you know, They have got revenue reserves. Um, they will be getting some revenue in, clearly, but don't take it as a guarantee they're going to uh, maintain that dividend. So there's a, a little bit of a warning there.
0: I suppose also until they've actually appointed the new manager, if indeed that's what they're going to do, we don't know whether they're going to change completely or just uh, carry on with the existing management. But presumably, until they reach that point, they can't, as it were, tie the hands of the new management team that will be coming in. They may want to change the portfolio. They probably will want to change the portfolio if it is a new team. Uh, and that may have some implications for the dividend.
1: And that's absolutely right. And Temple Bar is one of the kind of higher yielders now in the UK equity income peer group. So, you know, to maintain that level of yield, it's not uh, an impossibility, but it would be quite a commitment. And, and I think you're right. I think the board is saying they they don't want their hands tied at this stage.
0: And we've been hearing a not totally dissimilar or not inconsistent message from the Board of Troy Income and Growth, which is uh, traditionally has had a lower, I think, uh, yield than some of the others in the amongst its peer group. But they too have been warning for a little while that they're concerned about the ability to maintain dividends, uh, uh, not just for them, but across the whole sector.
1: Yeah. So um, ahead of this, last year, they said they were going to prioritise yield a little bit less. It was about total return. So they'd kind of moved their strategy on a little bit. So the announcement that we got this week from them was that they're looking to maintain their, their next two quarterly dividends at the same level. But particularly with regards to the next financial year, the statement they came out with, they said it's almost certain that the board will reduce the dividend to a sustainable level uh, from which growth can resume. So this idea that they will rebase their dividend um, so again, probably the first mainstream UK equity income fund that we've seen that's kind of given that kind of guidance that the vast majority at the moment have, have, have stated their desire, if not determination, to to maintain or even continue to grow their dividends, despite the fact that the amount of revenue coming into them has clearly been or will be kept very hard by what's going on across the wider UK marketplace.
0: I mean that certainly is. A, I would I would suggest it is a, a bit of a, a kind of warning light, a kind of amber light, if you like, that something might be changing if they think that they can't sustain even their dividend. Of course, they have a slightly different mandate. They do describe themselves as an income and growth uh, trust. They're not just wholly focusing on the yield. Uh, but that might be a warning shot for uh, for some of the others, and we might in due course see some of the others follow suit. We'll obviously have to keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, across in another part of the the marketplace, if I can put it that way, we haven't talked so far about what's happening with you like, the granddaddy of them all, which is uh, 3i, which is, uh, has a long history as uh, a backer mainly of private equity uh, involvement, has been very, very successful over the years. But it always tends to be rather excluded from people calculating what's going on in the investment trust sector, and, and often indeed when people are talking about the investment trust sector. Uh, it's obviously very big. That's one reason. So tell us briefly what 3i does, and why is it often sort of categorized in a group or on its own?
1: Yes, to answer the second question first, um, I, I mean, 3 i has changed and evolved quite a lot over any number of decades. So the idea of it being a venture capital backer backing, uh, you know, reasonably early stage British businesses. I think that's, you know, long gone. That was last century's story. So in the in, in number of in the years, they've kind of reinvented themselves as more. more specialist kind of asset manager looking at different areas and again they've moved on from that so now I think you could describe them as a specialist investor a private equity investor first and foremost but also infrastructure is a very important part of what they do so if you look at their portfolio at the moment a large part of their balance sheet is uh, invested in a company called Action which is a European company um, which has been tremendously successful uh, it's a private company uh, it's got an enterprise value of over 10 billion euros now, uh, and it's been one of the most successful kind of European private equity deals of all time, I mean, hugely, hugely successful. The, the question for that particular holding is how it would be affected by or impacted by COVID-19. Clearly, uh, retail has been a, it's been a tough area. A lot of its stores um, have been forced to close during this period. But actually, the news they gave this week is that virtually all the stores for action are now Open, clearly the growth uh, plans for that business will be hit, but they're still very, very optimistic on the prospects for that business. Uh, other aspects, um, they've got a, a holding in 3i Infrastructure, which is another listed uh, investment company. So that's a key holding for them. And they've, they've got a, a portfolio of other private equity businesses, which they've built up over the, the last uh, five to 10 years. So um, it's, an, it's an interesting prospect. Uh, action is a key part of the story, I think it's fair to say. And, I mean, you, again, you talk to investors, how they regard 3i. I mean, it's, it's historically been seen as quite a high beta, high beta play on the market and um, has un, until this year when it's obviously struggled a little bit. Um, it has performed very well under this new strategy and, and uh, leadership team.
0: So we've just explain what, what high beta means. What high beta means is that when, when the market goes up, 3i tends to go up in proportionate terms by more than the market as a whole. And by the same token, when market goes down in general, then the value of uh, 3i goes down proportionately more as well. So it's, as you say, we use high beta as a kind of a shorthand for something which has got more volatility than the market as a whole. Let's put it that way. Perhaps we should just also explain what exactly does action do? I mean, you said it's a retail stock, but what actually, what actually does it do? What, where, what markets are they in? Where do they operate?
1: So it's uh, described as a uh, non-food retailer or, or something along those lines. Basically, it's a fascinating business. Um, it's discount stores, and the key to this business is they have these monstrous hubs based around Europe. So they're in France, uh, the Netherlands, Germany, and they're moving into East Europe. And it's all about buying really interesting items at quite cheap prices and then getting them to their stores, of which they're not mega stores. They can be quite modest in terms of their size, but there are just many, many of these things. And uh, every week, literally, people will come into their stores to see what bargains they have uh, on offer. We don't obviously have this particular retailer in the UK, but we do have a pound stretcher, pound land. Uh, Not shops I've been to in recent times, I must be honest, but they probably the nearest thing that we've got to it. But the business model has just been tremendously successful. Uh, Talking to a number of people in the the private equity industry recently, uh, they remember when this deal came up. And and I I wanted to admit that nobody saw that this company was going to be the massive success that it was. So three, I have definitely uh, ridden this one. Very well, and committed to it again. They're, they're very happy to take a very long-term view on this. They're very ambitious in terms of where this business is going. And as I said, it accounts for over 40% of the net assets of 3i now.
0: So is that something one can say more generally about private equity uh, investment trusts, that they are prepared to let some of the positions become quite large? In other words, the basic idea behind private equity is you cast a lot of bread on the water and you're hoping that obviously not every, every company investing will succeed but you're hoping to find one or two really big ones that can actually compensate for an awful lot of ones that don't do quite so well. And you have the ability to let it run forward. Not something you could do in a conventional investment trust. You wouldn't be allowed to have 40% of the market cap in one business, would you?
1: And again, you're absolutely correct. So uh, another example, the HG Capital Trust, which is uh, another listed private equity company that's got a tremendous track record. Uh, And again, they've got two or three holdings, including a company called Visma, Um, which have performed incredibly well in accounting software. And, you know, they, they want to kind of keep going with these companies. The issue that you have, of course, is if these companies become so big, they represent such a large part of your net asset value, then that's the kind of key driver of your own share price. And, you know, you might be making some wonderful investments elsewhere, but because they're such a small size relatively, they don't really move the dial in terms of performance. But, you know, some would argue that's a nice problem to have. So, but it is something that you do see in some of the listed private equity funds, certainly.
0: We might just give a quick mention to 3i infrastructure in a moment. But the final point of 3i, uh, how does it trade? You know, it always seems to trade at a premium of some sort. what that's been my impression over the years. Maybe that's changed more recently. But how does it trade normally? I mean, and the kind of market, uh, the kind of turnover you get in the stock, is that significantly greater or less than in the, in the market as a whole, given its size?
1: Um, so 3i Infrastructure is a pretty decent sized company in its own right now. I mean, it's a well over a billion pounds market cap. You're correct, it has traded consistently on a, on a premium. And that's a reflection of the fact that actually it's performed very, very well. It's been a very strong performer, probably one of the best in that infrastructure space. Um, as a result of that, the dividend, the yield that it offers, um, has contracted as that um, you know share price and NAV performance have pushed up. So it's now probably one of the lowest yielders. Uh, in that uh, area of the of the uh, infrastructure space. But, you know, the dividend has still grown over time. It's just the fact that the total return has been greater. So uh, it's been a strong performer. It's got a few issues at the moment. Uh, I mean, if you look at some of the businesses that, the, that it's uh, exposed to, it's got some exposure to the uh, airline and the aviation industry. Um, that hasn't hit the valuations yet, but there's um, a company in there called TCR, one of its top three holdings, Uh, which provides equipment to uh, ground leasing and airline companies, you can imagine that's probably not where you want to be at the moment.
0: So we've talked quite a lot about some of the uh, alternative asset investment trusts and their ability to provide uh, yields that look, at least on the surface, are uh, above average compared to equity uh, investment trusts. Uh, There's one other which has been made an announcement recently, which I think is of interest to people, uh, which has had quite an interesting recent history, shall we say. Uh, It's been very volatile. And that's something called Civitas Social Housing. Perhaps you can explain what they do and uh, what they've been saying about dividends and how the market's been treating them in the last few weeks and months.
1: I mean, Civitas Social Housing is, is a really interesting place. So just a few words on what they do. They invest in, in regulated social housing. So effectively, they commission new builds, social housing, and then they acquire uh, these properties on completion. So they're not a developer. And this is supported housing for often young adults with uh, learning difficulties. So uh, people, for instance, with uh, autism, you might see housed in, in these types of properties and the uh, counterparty. So the people that, who then um, civitas uh, paid by would be think, uh, housing associations and, and, and people of that sort. They're actually, they're looking to change the mandate uh, in order to use some of their properties for NHS staff as well at the moment, so that's, that's something that they're looking at. You're right, 2019, they got hit very hard. There was an inquiry into the whole kind of social housing market, and that hit the share price. But this year, actually, they're one of the few property plays that actually have seen their share price increase. And I think it's interesting, we've talked before in the property sector about those people that have had to cut uh, or suspend their dividends, when in the case of, of Civitas, they're actually um, in a position where not, not only they can maintain the dividend, but they're looking to grow it as well, around about it, um, or will it be above inflation, just short of 2% next year. So that's the guidance that they're giving. So it's a very interesting area of the market. Um, there's a real kind of social impact aspect to to what they're doing. And again, it's one of those, uh, you know, type plays that, they offer a decent yield, so the yield's around about 5%, and in theory, and uh, hopefully in practice as well, it's, it's doing some real good in the community.
0: And I think they I mean, they have been trading actually on a discount as well, so unlike some of the other other trusts that are offering a, uh, a significant yield, 5% yield uh, sounds very uh, reasonable indeed, very very good value. Uh, but they've also been trading on a discount recently, I think that's fair to say. But I guess there is a question over there long term. The ability of the housing associations and local authorities to to go on funding and, and paying for all this housing I, I guess may be a question if you start looking at how the whole public finances and how they're going to be uh, supported over time but obviously social housing is a very important becoming even more of a, of a topical issue given what, uh, what's been going on in uh, care homes and with local authority uh, housing so that's another one we'll keep an eye on. Moving on from there coming back to the mainstream if you like what I like to call the mainstream I like traditional uh, equity investment trust which are uh, Big names, well-followed, popular with retail investors as well. Uh, we've heard from uh, two or three of them in the last uh, last few days. And perhaps we could just have a look at uh, what a couple of them have been saying, or two or three of them have been saying. Let's start with, you mentioned how well technology companies have been doing in the market as a whole, and whether the valuations have got too high. But we've had some uh, results from Scottish Mortgage Trust, which I think is the, the largest conventional equity investment trust in the sector very popular with retail investors, had a fabulous track record over the last few years, uh, managed by Bailey Gifford. What have they been saying? I mean, how have they been performing uh, through this market uh, disruption?
1: I mean, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust has just been an incredible story. Um, I mean, the results that came out this week were very, very strong. They were up about 14% compared, in NAV terms, compared with a decline in the market of 6%. But as they, the investment team behind Scottish Mortgage would say very quickly, they're not actually that bothered about one year. They're, they're all about long-term growth investors. And they have been very early to spot the opportunity that undoubtedly exists in, in companies, uh, in just Amazon and Alphabet and all of these very high-growth technology-driven companies. In addition to which, they've been, um, again, very quick to invest in some of the uh, unquoted private companies uh, at a kind of late stage funding rounds. So Alibaba, the Chinese company which is now listed, they actually backed that company, for instance, before it came to the marketplace. So um, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is uh, run by Bailey Gifford, James Anderson and Tom Slater, the two uh, managers. And they have fostered very strong links with a number of these um, um, uh, high growth technology companies and use those relationships to, to, to back some of these unquoted plays. And I think they're very, very interesting on a long term view. But yes, I mean, the, the market caps now through 10 billion pounds, which is for an investment trust company, you know, a substantial amount of money. I mean, I would suggest to the listeners, if you do get a chance to read James Anderson's thoughts and Tom Slater's thoughts, I mean, it's always a good read. And James Anderson points out that a number of years ago, he suggested that Scottish mortgage uh, would prove to be defensive as and when the next uh, economic downturn happened. And uh, so far, it, that's the way it's looking. It's certainly performed very well uh, year to date.
0: Yes, I would endorse that. And I've, I've, I've had the good fortune to talk to James and, and some of his colleagues several times. And uh, they have done a remarkable job and indeed uh, been vindicated in what they were somewhat derided at a certain point because they had so much in these technology companies, uh, even when they weren't making any money. And if you remember when people said that Twitter and things like that would never make any money or, or Amazon never made any money for a long time. So they have property from that and they've been right about that. But I guess that it's also still the case though, that, and they're very keen to emphasize this long-term nature of their investment, which I think is laudable, uh, but it is the case. They do have some significantly large holdings uh, in terms of their portfolio in some of these companies. And so by definition, if there ever was a period when those companies didn't do so well or fell out of favor with investors because they were thought to be too richly valued or whatever, then you obviously would see the impact of that in their, in their NAV performance. I think that's fair to say. Do they pay a dividend?
1: They do. I think it's fair to say you probably wouldn't buy a Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust for its dividend, but they still pay it. In fact, it's uncovered. So they use some revenue reserves, realized profits to kind of prop it up. Um, so I think they are keen to kind of, they know they, they've got to look after shareholders in that respect, but it's it's not a key part of the offering, I think it's fair to say.
0: We might just quickly mention another one before we move on from there, which is another fund manager who follows a similar policy in many ways, has a similar philosophy in many ways. So the kind of stocks he buys are very different. Uh, and I'm talking about Nick Train, who's the manager of Finsbury Growth and Income, which again is a another trust that has done incredibly well. He has the same approach in the sense that he's, Always emphasize he's a long-term investor. He takes significant stakes in uh, the companies that he invests in, and he's prepared to hold them through uh, short-term volatility. It's very rare that he actually sells anything or indeed buys very much. It's not not his style. He's very much a, uh, I'm here for the long term. And again, that has proved to be, in the last 10 years, that's proved to be a phenomenally successful uh, strategy, uh, and obviously, therefore, very successful for the trust as well. So how have they been trading and what, have, what, have, what has he been
1: saying? So we had interim results out from Finsbury Grove and Income uh, this week, and that was for the six-month period to the end of March. So, I mean, as you might imagine, that's been a difficult period for, every, for pretty much every investor. And lo and behold, their NAV total return was down 19%. It was a little bit ahead of the market, which was down 22% over that period. But, you know, the long-term record of this particular investment trust is still incredibly strong. And it was interesting to pick up that point that you're absolutely right. Nick is a man who backs his companies. He's got a portfolio of 20 or so holdings. Many of them have been in that portfolio for, for years, if not decades. But he's used this disruption in the marketplace to actually invest in luxury companies more than anything. So existing holdings, but where their share prices have been hit particularly badly. And he's, he's you know he's been happy to add to those kind of holdings where he thinks that sell-off's been a little bit overdone. But you know, he's, he's very long-term in nature. He does move the portfolio around a little bit. I and mean, he talks in the latest results about how he's got holdings in two football companies, Man United and, and, and Celtic. And clearly, there's not much football going on at the moment. But, you know, he's happy very much to take a long-term view on these companies. And, and he, he talks about franchises and brands. And I think on the over the long term, I think everyone will recognise these brands still have incredible value.
0: Another company which obviously has a very significant stake is... Uh firm that you will know well, I'm sure, which is uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is the largest sort of platform for retail investors in this country. Uh, and they've obviously had some controversy, and both the founders have sold some shares recently in Hargreaves Lansdowne, uh, and there's been this controversy about their best buy lists and their association with Neil Woodford and so on, uh, all of which has led to kind of review of uh, strategy and so on. Uh, but Nick Train has said he's very happy to, uh, to go on owning them. He doesn't mind the volatility. The share price has been up and down a lot. In the last few weeks but he's happy to hold it for the long term because he thinks they've still got a wonderful franchise and a and a very powerful brand i will not ask you to comment on that in particular simon but uh <laughs> i mentioned that in passing and another one which is very very well known and widely held i think is an investment trust called murray international and the manager there is a is a how do i put it very uh, splendidly outspoken gentleman from dundee named bruce stout uh and uh he has a very distinctive approach, which is which provides some useful uh, diversification, if nothing else, for um, investors in the global equity income sector. But what have they been saying this week?
1: So they had results out, uh, and they gave an update on the portfolio. And you're right, Bruce is a, a hugely experienced uh, investor, part of the uh, now Aberdeen Standard Investments uh, global team. But he takes a very different view of the world, and his portfolio reflects that. So he looks for value. He looks for companies that pay attractive uh, dividends. It's not just uh, equities, actually. There is some uh, emerging market debt in there as well. So probably about 80, 85% in equities uh, and the balance in debt with a large proportion of which is emerging market debt. So that's that's very different from most global portfolios, clearly. Um, again, the US, he thinks the US market is quite expensive. So you've got a very low um, weighting to, to the US, which is undoubtedly um, been a headwind for him in terms of his performance. I mean, if you haven't owned the US, you haven't been over the way, uh, US, and you haven't owned the big US tech companies, you've probably struggled. He doesn't own any of that. He doesn't own any China, any Chinese companies. But um, a big bet on Asian uh, and uh, emerging market companies, probably uh, around about 40, 42% at the moment in, in those areas of the marketplace. And And he believes he can identify and select companies that Uh, can pay really attractive dividend levels, and that's reflected in the yield that Murray International uh, offers. Uh, It's certainly one of the kind of higher yielders in that global equity income peer group, Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why it's consistently traded around NAV or on a premium, despite the fact, to be fair, that its total return numbers have been a bit disappointing over the last five years, particularly compared with some of its peers. I think the fact that they've, they've kept that dividend high uh, I think is the key thing. So we'll see how that plays out. I mean, they've got a record of 15 years dividend consecutive uh, increases, which is obviously very, very impressive. Can they keep that up? Time will tell. But they've got revenue reserves um, equal to about one, 1.1 times their last uh, annual dividend. So there's quite a lot of revenue reserves there. So one would suspect they would be minded to kind of keep that dividend record going.
0: One other point about the Murray International I noticed is that they have... Uh, changed their benchmark. I don't think significantly, but they've changed from one particular benchmark, one index to another, or one combination of indices to another. Uh, now, is that something that we should should concern, shareholders when they see that happen? I mean, what are the reasons they would give for a change of that sort, without necessarily going into the details of it? How should one think about that when you see that a board has done that?
1: You're right to identify it as a bit of a a red flag, an investment trust changing its benchmark. It it begs the question, well, why are they doing it? Is it because they've been struggling to beat their existing benchmark? I I would take a a different interpretation, to be honest, in the case of Murray International. The the, the previous benchmark was 40% in the UK, 60% rest of the world. And the simple truth is that, that the portfolio does not reflect that. Bruce has moved increasingly away from the UK over any number of years, the UK weighting now is, is is very low. It's nowhere near 40%. So they're moving it to the, the FTSE All World. And that's really the standard benchmark that you do find now in that global equity or global equity income peer group, MSCI World or FTSE All World. So it, it brings Murray International in line with his peer groups. And, and to be fair, Bruce does not run his portfolio in line with any uh, particular benchmark or combination of benchmarks. He's his own man. He has his own views and his portfolio reflects that.
0: So the idea of having a benchmark, I mean, most investment trusts do have a benchmark and they have to provide some way in which people can measure how their performance is. But if, as you say, the, uh, the way the portfolio is being managed changes or, or changes over time, and as you say, I mean, uh, Bruce Stout has been very negative on the UK in particular for quite a long time. So do you think that's a valid way to proceed? Or why do uh, investment trusts have benchmarks if they're going to say that we're going to change them, you know, every so often when our policy
1: changes? I mean, some investment trusts, and, and to be fair, it's a re- reducing number now, have benchmarks because they have performance fees. And obviously, when you have a performance fee, you have to have something that you measure your performance against in order to calculate that that additional fee. Um, that, As I say, that, that kind of pool of investment trust companies who have performance fees is uh, reducing all the time. But apart from that, I think it's quite helpful to investors to know what an investment manager is looking to beat. And it might not be that that's exactly... Where the portfolio is is going to be invested, clearly some investment managers do give you a very similar portfolio to to a, a benchmark, be it the FTSE All Share or the FTSE World, and they might have risk positions. And this is very much an institutional uh, mindset of the way that they run their investment. But increasingly now, in the world of active management, and, and compare that to passive investing that we see through ETFs, most managers are now looking to become uh, unconstrained and justify. The additional fees that uh, active management uh, commands but i still think benchmarks are important and even if you underperform a benchmark over a six month period or a 12 month period i think over a three to five year period that medium to long term you should be looking to outperform your benchmark i think that is a helpful measure
0: very good well on that note simon thank you very much again as always this week look forward to speaking next week we'll see whether the little dip we've seen this week continues next week it is quite often uh, we do see these kind of movements. Uh, they, they do tend to run for a week or two. Uh, interesting to see whether that happens. But uh, thank you for your wise comments as always. And we'll look forward to speaking
1: next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.moneymakers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.